Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 16. Now that we've been together for a number of years uh, working through books of the Bible expositionally, I don't think there's typically any surprises on where we are from week to week. So, But we are in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we come before you praying for your word to have its way in us, not because it's a habit or it's something we do by rote. We do it because, Lord, we understand that we need your guidance and your illumination. We understand that salvation is the work of you and you alone. We understand that your word is given to us to make us wise unto salvation, but we also understand that our eyes are closed unless you open them. We understand that our ears are, are deaf unless you let us hear, and that we admit that our hearts are hard unless you, unless you change our hearts. And so, Father, we pray, Lord God, as we, we come to your word, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the seed of your word, and that it would take root in our hearts, and it would grow up, and it would bear much fruit for your glory, Lord. And Father, we pray, Lord God, for those who may have distractions in their lives, whether it's the loss of loved ones, whether it's financial trouble, whether it's you know, trouble at home, whether it's you know, fear of what's going to happen with, with COVID-19 and, and all that's, that's going on with that, Lord. I pray that, Father, you'd help us to set aside all the distractions that surround us, Lord, that we could take this time and focus our hearts and minds upon you and hear what it is that you'd have us to hear. And I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen this, this broken, feeble vessel, Lord, before you, Lord, that you may be glorified through me. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. John Calvin, the reformer, once wrote, In the maxims of the law, God is seen as the rewarder of perfect righteousness and the avenger of sin. But in Christ, His face shines out full of grace and gentleness to poor, unworthy sinners. So three weeks ago, when we were last together in our series on Romans, we talked about justice. And we talked about the fact that we all instinctively know what justice is, at least on on some level, that we have, all of us, an expectation of justice. I mean, we expects justice to be done. And, and the reason for that is we were made in the image of God, right? And God himself is the very source and the very standard of justice. And so we know what justice is, and we certainly expect justice, especially when it comes to us and our, our loved ones, uh, because God himself is just. God is holy and just, and he has promised 
to bring justice to the world through His judgment, that, that He has promised as we lean on at times His vengeance that He will avenge. Remember, He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Right? But He's also promised to set all things right, as Christ has says in Revelation that He's making all things new. Right? And that is so because He is just. And what we understand from our time together three weeks ago, that God has a standard for His justice. And that standard for God's justice is the, under, is, the, is the attribute of righteousness. In fact, Paul says as much in verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice the, the, uh, the adjective, righteous judgment. So God's standard by which He will judge and his standard by which he administers justice to the world and finally will consummate his work and justice, the standard that he uses is righteousness. Well, then what then is righteousness? And I don't ask that question rhetorically, and I certainly don't ask it to be silly. I mean it sincerely. What is righteousness? And like justice, righteousness is something we have kind of a sense of. All of us have a feeling what righteousness is. I mean, we might not be able to define it as a dictionary does, but we do kind of know, right? We instinctively know when something is righteous and when something is not. We know that loving your neighbor is righteous, but we also know that stealing from him is not. We know that telling the truth is righteous, and we know that lying, even if it benefits us, is still not we know that faithfulness in relationships is righteous and that unfaithfulness instinctively we know is not. And so we might not have memorized the dictionary definition of the word, but we certainly have a sense of what it means. But I think if we're honest, I think we also have a sense that it, there's something more to it, that, 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 that the meaning of righteousness is bigger than I think we've been able to get our hands in our head around, especially when it comes to God's own righteousness. We understand God's righteousness, His standard of righteousness, transcends our own in some way. And so then I ask the question again, sincerely, what is righteousness? Well, one of the authors that I've read this week attempted to answer this question. He writes, Dictionary, dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. He says that such Behavior is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. And I would think that that's probably the common understanding. If we were all to take a poll, we'd all pretty much agree that that's a pretty good estimation of what righteousness is. That righteousness is the actions and behavior of someone who is morally justifiable in acting right according to some accepted standard some standard of morality, some standard of justice. In fact, that's what we hope for. It's, it's what we build our nation on is that sense of standard of justice, a standard of virtue. And for, for, for the world, these standards define, right? These, these, these standards define for, for us righteous. And those standards for the world have been set aside and defined by culture, right? That's why those standards have shifted and these standards are also set by our government. That's why there are some things that the government does and requires that doesn't make any sense to some of us, right? It is, it is changed. But what, what we know about God as a Christian is that there is a, a different standard of righteousness. So what about for Christians? What is his or her standard of, of righteousness? Well, the same author put it this way. He writes, the Bible's standard for human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. He goes on and says, thus God's law, as given in the Bible, both describes His own character and constitutes the plumb line by which He measures human righteousness. So the righteousness of Christians, for the Christian, is vastly different than the world. Righteousness is nothing short of perfection in every attitude, in every behavior, in every word. And that is the standard or the plumb line that God measures all human righteousness. And brothers and sisters, 
if you've noticed by the songs we sang, that is the point of today's text. God's righteous standard and what that means for us. So turn with me to Romans chapter 2. But I want you to go, we're going to go right to verse 13. And as you do, as we, as we get ready to, to get into this text, let me re, let's remember where we are in the context of Paul's explaining the gospel to the Roman church. Remember, he tells the Roman church, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to notice Paul, right before he begins the explanation of the gospel, he says, he talks about God's righteousness. This perfection of attributes and actions and attitudes is revealed in the gospel itself. And he cites the Old Testament, which declares that those who are righteous, those who possess righteousness, shall live by faith. And so the gospel begins with God's righteousness. And I say that is because the gospel doesn't begin with you. It doesn't begin with me. I think when we talk about the gospel, sometimes we want to share our faith with someone. We forget the gospel doesn't begin with us in the world we live in. It begins with God and His righteousness. right? And then it begins with those who are considered righteous. And so with that in view, let's look at verse 13. Paul writes, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, or in other words, declared righteous. Now the problem with this text is the main point of this text that we are looking at today from verses 12 through 16. The main point here gets lost on so many of us as we read this passage, Christian and non-Christian alike. Because what we'll do is we'll read this text along with what Paul had said in the previous section about being judged by what we do, and then we immediately think back to verse 17 of chapter 1, where Paul says the righteous live by faith. Right. They don't live by what they do, they live by, what, by faith. But then here Paul is saying that hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but rather the doers of the law are the ones who are justified and declared righteous in his sight. And in light of this tension, one of two ha things happens to Christians. It's like it's predictable as the weather, right? Number one, the legalist will use this as a proof text to say, see, it's not good enough to just be hearers of the law, but you must also be doers of the law to be justified. And they'll go right to James 1.22 that says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And they will say, see, you need to do things to be saved. You need to, to, to look a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You need to talk a certain way. You need to obey the rules. You need to be part of the right group of people. You need to cut your hair. You need to wear dresses and all that other stuff. That's how the legalists will look at this text and respond to that. That's number one. Number two, just about everyone else, we will become dismissive of what Paul is saying here. Because we understand the gospel, right? We will reason that Paul is talking to the Jews here. And what he's saying here is not really relevant for us. It's not for us, it's for them. Because Paul is talking about the law, and we know that we are not saved by obedience to the law. And so obviously, this is not about us or for us. And in light of that, we kind of read past this text. We kind of read it, maybe even memorize it, but then we read on to get to the next section, especially you know, Romans chapter 3, where the good stuff starts to happen. But we miss the main point of what Paul is getting at here. But I want you to understand right here in verse 13 is the main point of this text. And this point is relevant for everyone, everyone, everyone. Not just the Jew, but Gentiles also. The main point of this section is for all people. In fact, the main point is wrapped up in three words right here in the middle of this verse. And they are righteous before God. That is the main idea of the text. That, by the way, I just want you to know that whole set list that Matt 
had put together about righteousness. He did it on his own. I even talked to him about what this text was about. This is what he saw in the text because he knows that's what it's about. Right? This is the point that we must understand because, because being righteous before God, that is the goal. To be right with God, to have right relationship with God, that is the goal that we were created to achieve. That is the mark that we were all supposed to be aiming at. And by the way, that's exactly what we desperately need, to be righteous before God. And hear me, I don't want to oversimplify this point, right? but if we don't get this, if we don't attain this righteousness before God, Nothing else in the universe is going to matter. Nothing else in the universe is going to matter. It does not matter if you're righteous in the eyes of people. Right? Everybody around you can say, you're the nicest, most caring, most giving, most loving, most compassionate, most awesome, selfless person in the world. It doesn't matter if you're righteous in the eyes of other people. It doesn't matter if you're righteous in the eyes of culture. You can do all the right things and say all the right things and be politically correct and woke to your heart's content, and you will still not be righteous in the sight of God. It doesn't matter if you're righteous in the eyes of the government and do what you're told to do and be good little soldiers, always obeying every little thing that they say. It doesn't matter if you're right and righteous in the eyes of your spouse because they think you're a wonderful husband and provider or they think that you're a wonderful wife and, and nurturer. It doesn't matter if your children think that you're righteous and, and, and love you because you've provided all that they've ever needed or wanted. It doesn't matter if you're righteous in the eyes of your community and that you are that person who helps the sick and the homeless and, and that you're patient with every little person and that you coach Little League and, and, you, and you keep the books for, you know, for the for the local um, senior organization. None of that matters if you're righteous in the eyes of your community. In the end, none of these things will matter if you're not righteous before God. And hear me, please, because we, as Christians, allow the world to shape our view on this. It doesn't matter how loving you are. It doesn't. It doesn't. Let's just settle that in our hearts. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how compassionate you are or religious you are or how many times you pray or how many times you read the Bible, how many times you attend church and how much money you give to feed the homeless. None of that will matter at all if you are not righteous before God because without that righteousness, you are unrighteous because unrighteousness is what it means to not be righteous. And Paul opens up his gospel in chapter 1, in verse 18, he explained that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed against those who are not righteous before Him. Look at verse 12 in this text, he says, For all who have sinned or missed the mark of righteousness. That's what sin means, by the way. Sin is a term, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark to miss the standard. Those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Those who were not righteous before God will experience God's judgment and wrath and will perish. This is the truth that Paul has been explaining since chapter 1, verse 18 until now. Right? And this, by the way, is the truth that so many people so many people want to ignore. It's a truth that those who are unrighteous will experience God's judgment and wrath is probably the, one of the most hated of all the Christian doctrines. It's the one thing that nobody wants to talk about because people don't want to hear about people being judged and under the condemnation and wrath of God. People don't want to talk about it. That's why there's so many what they call seeker-sensitive churches, and I say that loosely there's a whole seeker-sensitive movement in the 1980s that created megachurches filled full of people who were not saved. Because what they do is they talk about eight ways to have a better marriage, but they never talk about what you really need to hear, that you're not righteous before God. So many of us are ashamed of the gospel 
That's what we talked about early on when we first started Romans. Some of us are ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed to openly express this truth. We don't want. I mean, nobody wants to hurt people's feelings, but some people's desire not to hurt people's feelings overwhelms their need to tell the truth. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want, we don't take a risk in our relationships, right, that they might not talk to us if we tell them the truth. It seems for some, their connection to other people is more important than telling the truth. The truth is that if you're not righteous in God's sight, you have no hope. This isn't a personal thing. It's just simply the truth. The sun comes up in the east and it goes down in the west. It is a fact of life. Another truth that is about, about this is that many people hate is the fact that there is actually an objective standard of righteousness that we must all attain. Because there's something in the human psyche that causes us to think that our own standard of righteousness, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for God. I mean, we think that if it's good enough for us, and it's good enough for my people, it's got to be good enough for Him. Professor and, and pastor Ian Duguid has this to say about this. He says, if my own righteousness is all that I am relying on, that I have no hope in finding favor in God's sight. This is perhaps the hardest, he says. This is perhaps the hardest part of the Christian message that across the people, the fact that we are not automatically headed for heaven. The truth that our sin, and not just the wrong things that we've done, but the very attitude of our hearts drives us away from God. That is why the gospel has always has been always been better received amongst the prostitutes and drug addicts and losers than amongst the rich and famous. These people don't find it hard to believe that they have nothing to offer to God. The problem that so many of us have, including so many people who claim to be Christians, is that they think that God will not hold them to His perfect standard. This, this perfect standard of human righteousness, again, as the author puts it, God's own standard for righteousness is the plumb line which which he measures all human righteousness. But so many people honestly think that they're just legitimately good enough on their own. They think that their sins you know, are just harmless mistakes. It's just a lapse in judgment. In fact, if you were to ask, if you were to ask and I challenge anybody to do this, ask 100 people, do you deserve to go to heaven or hell? You're going to find the vast majority of people, Christian and non-Christian, will say confidently they deserve to go to heaven. And you ask them why. They say, because I'm a good person. I'm just telling you, they've done these studies. And people, I mean, Americans, generally speaking, almost all of them think that they're going to heaven because they're good people. According to their own standard of righteousness. But Paul makes a point to say that that is not true. We are not justified those who are justified are those who, who are righteous, not in our own sight. We are righteous in God's sight. There's a big difference between those two. And those who fall short of this righteousness, those who miss this mark, those who sin, will, as Paul says, perish. They will experience God's judgment and wrath. Now, those of us who are Christians... When we, we come to a message like this, we have a tendency at this point to want to resolve the tension that's beginning to build in us, right? As we talk about this, we want to just start skipping right to the good parts, just get right to the gospel where it says, you know, but, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Whew, let's take that off of our plate now, right? And that's true. Right? By the way, that's the truth, and that's the hope we hold on to. But there's still something that Paul is communicating here that we as Christians must come to terms with, and we must see clearly. And this truth, and this truth that we need, and what every human needs, is the fact that, that righteousness before God is a requirement. We need to be righteous before God. Otherwise, nothing else in the universe matters. which then leads to the question, who could be made righteous before God? And Paul says in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. The hearers of the law are not righteous before God. Now, why is this important? Because it seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? Well, because some have thought and some still think that hearing the law and knowing the law and memorizing the law makes them right with God. 
But Paul declares, hearing the law does not make a person right with God. Which means possessing the written law does not make a Jewish person right with God. Knowing the law does not make one righteous with God. Memorizing all the details and every jot and tittle of the law does not make you right with God. And being able to recite every single word doesn't make you right with God. Paul makes this point because Jews knew the law inside and out, but often didn't obey the law because they believed that they were justified because they were Jews. This is like the religious person thinking that they're good with God because they're religious. They were God's special people given the law, and they thought that that was good enough. But hearing the law and knowing the law doesn't justify anyone. In fact, by the way, that was Adam's problem. Adam knew exactly what God expected. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pretty simple. He had heard God very loud and clear. Him and Eve had memorized this one commandment. In fact, she even recited this commandment to the serpent. The serpent said to the woman in in chapter 3 of Genesis, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. See, she already knew the distinction between right and wrong here. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Adam and Eve had heard God and what he said, and they knew what God said. They understood what God said, but that was not enough to make them righteous because it's not the hearers who are righteous. It is the doers, as Paul says, that are righteous. Paul says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. Now, the word justified here in the Greek is the same root word as righteous, which means justified is to be made righteous or conformed to a proper standard. And so what Paul is saying, it's the doers of the law. It's those who obey, who are justified. Those who who fulfill the covenant of works are, are righteous. That's what he's saying here. And the thing that we need to realize and come to terms with, I know what we're thinking in the back of our heads about faith, but just stay with me on this. What you need to realize is that has always, always, always been the standard from the very beginning. That has always been the standard. As the the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith states in chapter 6, paragraph 1, it says that God created humanity upright and perfect, He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. You see, what Paul is referring to is is God's standard of righteousness for mankind that he gave mankind from the very beginning. He said, do this and you will live. Do that and you will die. Obey me and live. Disobey me and die. That is the covenant of works. This, is, this has been, hap- been the requirement from the beginning, and it's never changed. It has never, ever changed. Those who, who live are those who are found to be righteous. Those who are not found to be righteous are the ones who die. That has not changed. Now, please hear me. If your heart's beating really fast and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about, right? Take a deep breath and hang with me and listen to the end. I will resolve the tension that you're feeling, all right? It's coming. But you need to come to terms with this truth. God's standard requirements have not changed. His need or His requirement for righteousness have not changed. And this is something that we have forgotten or we have failed to learn as Christians. This is why so many people seem to think that there is a different God in the New Testament than there is the Old Testament. Or that they say that something changed about God in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament. But understand, nothing has changed. The fact is the Bible continues to be God's written standard of that same righteousness. And as time has went on, that standard of righteousness just simply becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. That's what the law has been. The law was given to reinforce this understanding that God demands perfect conformity to His standard, that God's requirement for righteousness has not changed. Even Christ Himself, 
Even Christ himself raises the bar. Let's not forget what he said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, listen to that word, your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then to emphasize his point, he says in verse 21, have you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus drops the drops the bomb on us and says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. How many, of, how many of you qualify there at some point in your life? Okay, all right. Everyone of you who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother is liable to counsel. Everyone who says, you fool, come on, raise your hands, let's go. Right, right. Will be liable, liable to the hell of fire. And then, if that wasn't enough to emphasize his point, he goes to verse 27, because you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustful, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart, making adulterers out of everyone. Right? So God's standard of righteousness has not ever gone away. It has not diminished. It's, it's been continually reinforced throughout the New Testament. And that's what Paul is drawing us to. Paul is drawing us to God's standard for mankind, and that's perfect righteousness. And hearing this standard and knowing the standard and agreeing with this standard and memorizing the standard will not lead you to life. Only doing it will lead to life. Those who keep God's righteousness will live, and those who fail will face God's judgment and wrath and perish. This is the point that Paul is driving home, which then pushes us to the inescapable, terrifying, but necessary truth. And that is, none of us is righteous before God. That's where we all just should just take a deep breath and sigh. And with as much strength as we can say, Amen. None of us is righteous before God. In fact, that's the truth that Paul is going to declare in chapter 3. That's where he's going. In verse 10, he says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. This, brothers and sisters, is the inescapable truth that we must come to. As uncomfortable as it is, as much as it hurts to talk about, as much as, as painful as it is to, to think about, as much as it makes our knees shake to even have to tell somebody about, this is the fact that we have all failed to do what is required. We have all failed in that. We have all, this is what Paul says, for all who have sinned, missed the mark, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And those of you who know the book of Romans know that Paul in chapter 3 will declare the truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. that that's, that's a verse that we all use. If you evangelize the Romans road, you know that that's one of the, the verses we stop at. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What he's talking about is this glorious standard that Paul is referring to right here. Again, let me remind you of this. The standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word. Whew! Thus, God's law, as given in the Bible, both describes His own character and constitutes the plumb line or the standard by which He measures and judges human righteousness. And looking at this standard, we can see that we've all failed the standard, whether we're religious or we're not. Whether we are Jewish or we are not. Whether we're good citizens, whether we're criminals, whether we are born of the covenant community or we are not. We have all failed to attain the righteous standing with God. And because of that, Paul said, everyone is without an excuse. He writes, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The Jewish nation, which was set aside by God to bear witness to His goodness to the rest of the world who were given the law, right? they knew the law, and the law actually became part of their culture. It was just part of who they were. In fact, it's even a part of their culture today. I don't know if you realize this. I was actually list, uh, I actually saw something in Manhattan around the city of Manhattan. There's a wire that, that spans all the way around the city of Manhattan. 
or around, especially around this big, gigantic Jewish neighborhood. And they said the reason why it's there is that it's a, it's a false roof, right? Because it, it delineates so, like this pseudo-household. Because the Sabbath says you can only go so many meters outside your house. And by running a wire around the neighborhood, they have basically created a gigantic common house, right? They're still, they know what the law is. They're still trying to obey it. Right, but Paul says that those who sin with the law will still be judged because the law condemns them. They know what God expects, but they sin anyway. And those who were Jewish were given the law. Those who are not Jewish, we can't plead ignorance. Because Paul says, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. This right here answers the question for us of those, what about the innocent man in Mongolia somewhere? There's no innocent man in Mongolia. That's the problem. We all, right, we we can't plead ignorance because, again, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Now, the Greek here for the word perish is made up of two words, meaning away from and to destroy. So it's to destroy away from, and if you put the ideas together properly, it means to fully destroy something, to fully cut it off. It literally means to violently and completely perish something. It implies permanent and absolute destruction. And Paul says that is the fate of those who don't have the law and fail to attain the righteousness of God's standard. They are in the same boat as the Jews. And before we can say, well, that's just not fair, Paul then explains to us why it is fair why the Gentiles are held to the same standard as the, as the Jews. He says, For when the Gentiles do not have the law by nature, meaning by the nature of who they are internally, as image bearers of God, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the written law. The Gentiles being created in the image of God by their nature are capable of doing what the law requires. And, and Paul explains why that is. He says, they show that the works of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences. The mechanism the Holy Spirit gives us also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The reason why there is no one in the world innocent is because even though there has never been a law or a gospel for them, is because the works of the law, God's perfect standard of righteousness, has been written on their hearts. And we have been saying that they know, right? From the beginning, we know that, that, that we've said that they know that God exists because creation testifies about His nature to Him. That's what He says in Romans chapter 1. But they also know what God requires. His righteous standard has been written on their heart. Remember, even in Romans 1, it says, they know what they're doing is wrong and deserving of what? Death but they encourage other people to do it. His righteous standard has been written on their hearts, and they give evidence of this truth in their actions and attitudes. When anyone does anything good, when anybody does anything good, they are bearing witness to the fact that God's law, His righteousness, has been written on their hearts. We all know that rape is wrong. Why? Because of God's righteous standard on our hearts. By the way, this is why professing atheists can rightly say that you don't have to be religious to be a moral person. Sometimes I hear Christians arguing with, with atheists saying, well, you have to be a Christian to be moral, which is false, it's wrong. Atheists can be very moral in a number of different ways. And the reason for that is because everybody has a sense of morality. Everyone has it. The law of God is written upon their hearts. We instinctively know that lying is wrong. We instinctively know that oppressing other people is wrong. We know that rape is wrong. We know that murder is wrong. Unfaithfulness is wrong. And it's not because of some cultural conventions, as some people would say. The reason why all of humanity, historically, broadly speaking, has had the same code of, of morality. Have you noticed that there's just been the same things across all civilizations and all cultures? There's certain things that have been considered to be immoral and moral. The reason for that is because, because we're made in the image of God, created for relationship with Him, and we have His law written upon our hearts. And because of that, all mankind is judged by the same exact standard as the Jews, which means if they are not righteous in the sight of God, 
they, like the Jews, will be judged and perish. And again, this reminds us of this devastating truth. No one has attained righteousness that is required. And that means every one of us is without excuse. And that means God's wrath and justice abides on everyone universally, Jew and Gentile alike, religious person and non-religious person alike, male and female alike, black and white skin alike, Republican and Democrat alike. We tend in our culture today to divide ourselves up into little bitty subgroups that war with one another. But no matter what we tend to identify as or what group we tend to belong to and how we tend to divide ourselves up into groups and subgroups, there is something that unites all of us. And that is the fact that we were all made in the image of God. And we were all created to have fellowship with Him. And none of us has attained the righteousness that's required for us to have that relationship with Him. And that all of us, universally, were by nature children of wrath, deserving for Him to utterly destroy us for our rebellion against Him. This is where Paul is driving and leading us. And this is the truth we must know and understand and come to terms with. Now, why then be so emphatic? And why do we take so much time to work through this dark stuff like this, this hard-to-hear stuff? I mean, can't we just jump to Romans chapter 3 in the middle where he says, all are justified by faith in Christ? Well, let me explain to you the aim of this text. The aim of this text is not to make you feel hopeless. It's not the point. The aim of this text is not to make you have a poor self-esteem. The aim of this text is not to make you constantly live in a state of self-hatred. I'm such a failure. I'm a wretched slug. I'm nothing but a broken sinner that can never do anything right. The aim of this text is not to cause you to continually wallow in self-pity right, because of your horrific sin nature. The aim of this text is not to cause you to permanently live in sackcloth and ashes. The aim of this text is to get your attention and bring you to the sober reality of where you are and then lead us and drive us to Christ. That's the point. That is the aim of this text is to drive us to the feet of Christ because only His righteousness can save us. Our righteousness cannot. The aim of this text is to humble us from our pride and self-righteousness. The self-righteousness that we're all prone to. The self-righteousness that we are all prone to fall into. As Edward Carnell says, man cannot be righteous in God's sight unless until he repents of his own expectation that he can be righteous in his own sight. God is not mighty toward man until man is weak toward God. We must come to the place where we see how weak and broken we really are. Only then will we repent of our tendency towards self-righteousness. The aim of this text is to humble us, and, and the aim of this text is to force us to take our eyes off of ourselves and the myriad of false gods that surround us and the, and the approval of man that we so desperately crave and the, the religion itself and even our culture. The text is meant to force us to take our eyes off these earthly things that cannot save us and turn our eyes towards heaven and fix our gaze upon Christ and His righteousness because only He and His righteousness can save us. Because He is our righteousness. That's what the truth that this text leads us to is that Christ is our righteousness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him to be sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become <coughs> the righteousness of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Christ is our righteousness. If there is only one thing that you remember today from this sermon, if there's only one thing that you leave here with, that you carry with you, that allows you to grow in your relationship with God, right? let it be this. Christ is our righteousness. Write that down in your Bible and memorize that. I'm not telling you to get a tattoo of that, okay? Some people do stuff like that. 
Christ is our righteousness. Christ, God in the flesh, in his humanity, did all for us the things that we could not do that were required. He fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. He kept the precepts of the law that the nation of Israel failed to keep. He, in his humanity, became the first human being to be righteous in the sight of God since Adam before the fall. He, in his humanity, earned fellowship with God that was offered to Adam, the fellowship that Adam destroyed. Christ is the one who did all that was required, and he did it all for us. R.C. Sproul once wrote, the only righteousness that meets the requirements of the law is the righteousness of Christ. He further says, the only works of righteousness that serve to justify a sinner are the works of Christ. Only Christ and Christ alone earned righteousness before God, and he earned it for you and for me. And this text is meant to drive us to him. Because the gospel makes it clear that when we repent and come to faith in Christ, not only are our sins washed away by the blood of his atoning sacrifice, his righteousness, his perfect obedience before God is credited to our account. Right? And this in theology is what we call imputed, the imputed righteousness of Christ. The idea of imputing something is to credit something. And the way it works is like this. By faith in Christ, our sin was imputed to, to Christ on the cross. He had never sinned before. Never had Christ ever sinned. But our sin was, cre- was, was imputed to Him. And as a result then, He bore in His body the wrath and the destruction that was set aside for us. The, one, the, the wrath and destruction that we deserved. On the cross, he bore the full weight of our sin. And so by faith in, our sin is imputed or credited to him. But then his righteous perfection is imputed to us. It's credited to us as if it's our own. And so when you put your faith in Christ, you become perfectly righteous. Do you really understand that? Do you, have you embraced that truth that before God you are perfectly righteous as if you had kept the law, as if you had fulfilled the covenant of works, as if you had, had met the requirements of fellowship with God, as if you were given the right to be in God's presence. That is what you were given when you come to faith in Christ. You were completely and totally a righteous doer of the law but not because of what you have done and not because of what you will do. Because if it was up to you, you'd mess it up. But because of what Christ has done for you. This is why, by the way, salvation can't be up to us. Because if it's up to us, we'd already mess it up. And the implication of this is when you finally come face to face with God in that righteousness and when he judges you according to what you've done, right? As Paul talked about in the text before, your record will not only be completely clean and spotless, you will be exonerated as being completely righteous before God. And again, it's not because of what you do, but what Christ has done to reconcile you to God. This is why why R.C. Sproul, again, this is the third quote, but he says, I rest solely on his righteousness and his atonement because I know there's nothing I can do to make up for my own iniquity. You see, the aim of this text is not to cause you to hang your head in shame continually. It's meant to lead us to the place where we can finally see what Christ has truly done for us so that we can see the depth of God's grace and love for us so that we can see just how worthy God is and, how, and, and, and worship Him and to glorify Him all the more in our lives because of this. It is this truth that God demands perfect righteousness and that we have failed to attain it that allows us to see the majesty and the beauty of the gospel of grace and see that it is Christ and Christ alone who paid and purchased the price to bring us to God. 
without crying, I hope, I want to, I want to read to you how this gospel is inspired to the hymn writer. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. All the labors of my hands could not meet thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross of Christ I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. To thy fountain, Lord, I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy throne, judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. That is the point of Paul's exposition of the gospel to force us to see the truth of who we really are. Only until then will we finally see the cure that we need. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.